What's up, film world? Welcome back to episode 20 of The Dark Room, where two blind cinephiles illuminate the sided. I'm Lee Pugsley. I'm Alex Howard. And this is a podcast hosted by two legally blind guys for film lovers of all abilities. We have a very special guest today. Alex, why don't you tell us who we have on the show? Yeah, so today we have um, Michelle Spitz on the show. She is a woman of her word. It's her company. Michelle does narration for audio description and also gives grants to help fund certain audio description projects. She wears many hats and has a big hand in the disability community. Michelle has also brought me on panels at Sundance and has taught the Respectability Lab. So she has a big hand in the audio description community. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. So, Michelle, I think we wanted to start off with, like, how did you get into this space? I know you're not low vision yourself, but how did you discover audio description and get into narrating and doing all the advocacy that you're doing? So interesting. Uh, Almost a decade ago, I was asked by a friend of mine who works in live theater with people with disabilities uh, to meet a gentleman who had been at Universal Studios and was retiring after 25 years of post-production who wanted to be sure that media and film were um, both accessible to low vision and blind and deaf and hard of hearing patrons. And at the time I had no idea what that was. And furthermore, shortly after that, he had asked me to go audition at a company where the owner of the company and, and the engineers were also low vision and blind. So I went and had the audition and I had no idea what that was. I have a background in broadcasting. And it was an extraordinary experience. I came to really love what that work was, what it meant to me. And it was a perfect sort of liaison to prior 10 years of philanthropy that I was involved in supporting multiple communities, marginalized, disabled veterans, seniors, you name it, as patrons in the arts and or as artists themselves. And then I was given this extraordinary opportunity to make an art form that would be accessible for low vision and blind communities. And that became my passion. And I moved away from my prior career and made this my entire existence. So I decided that there wasn't enough of it. We didn't have sort of universal access in many areas. I work in many areas. I work in museums. I work in pro uh, nonprofit areas with audio description, film, theater. I, I work in so many areas of this. And I'm also a producer of audio description. So I produce it. I narrate it, I hire talent, I have a team, and it grew uh, enormously over this last decade, and it morphed into teaching and public speaking and consulting at film festivals and so many different areas. And this has become, because of it, it has become more prevalent now, but in the time in which I entered this area, I was knocking on doors that were either closed in my face and or they were partially open and now have become fully open. And I trailblazed. Uh, I I met every single person I could. I traveled extensively, educate everyone I could in the arts, at large, in film, in media, about why this needed to be universal. And that the same sort of fair play, as I call it, in access, if you are going to only consider captions for low, uh, pardon me, for, you know, hard of hearing and, and deaf communities, how is it that we've left out this other language for the low vision and blind communities? And so a lot of people were not on board or should I say educated or financially capable of bringing this on. So my journey has been one of extraordinary um, growth in this field, and I've had a, a very big hand at it. 
So I'm so proud to see where we are today and where we've come. Yeah, I think one of the points of this podcast is to create awareness around audio description because it is not as common as captions. And, you know, there's still this myth that blind people don't watch movies. So we're that's really the main part of this podcast is trying to let the blind have our part of the movie fandom as a whole. So yeah, we're trying to educate people as well. But I think one of the big things that makes you unique from other describers is that you actually give grants to independent films that help fund audio description. So if you could talk a little bit about that and what um, what independent filmmakers or topics qualify for the grants that you give? Mm-hmm. So yes, and, and this was part of the philanthropic endeavor of what I've done. So over I've done probably over 130 films at this point in the last 10 years. Um, 85% of those, I have funded the audio description and produced it. So a lot of the films I've worked on are disability subject-based. Then I also work in very high-profile theatrical releases uh, with certain production companies, and I give them grants ongoing. I have done that for quite a while. And what was most productive in this process was in stating a grant program in different organizations. For example, I instated one in Women in Film LA, then brought in awareness and a person who was getting finishing film funds would also get my audio description fund. So they had to become aware of this asset, right? It was sort of a a really interesting way of approaching it, sort of a multi-pronged approach. For many years now, I think I'm going on, oh gosh, many years, maybe eight years, New York Women in Film and Television annually, I give finishing funds for a film about disability to a filmmaker so they understand their film can't just be about disability and not making it accessible. And I've done the same for Real Abilities for many years. And I also did for Superfest, the Disability Film Festival in San Francisco. And then, as I said, I on, outside of that, I work uh, with another big production company and I work on some very, very large titles and then people know about and they come back to me. And as you, as it, with any person who's been in the industry long enough, m- much of my my work is now by referral. And in this process, what's amazing is that the individuals who worked with me over these years have learned the importance of it, and because of that, they are now putting that into play in their film budget. Right? They're putting a line in their budget and. I realized at that point that that one person was the domino effect to the next person, to the next person, to the next person. And if that was the ultimate end result of my initial goal, then I have succeeded. And in fact, I have. So this continues to go on. And it, you know, I also pivot in different directions to be sure that different areas are also covered that otherwise may not have been. So I've been part of those process, sort of the infancy of something or when they're well into it. So it it sort of moves in that direction. And the grants are fairly substantial as far as the production, but a lot of that is my time, my asset management. I coach my clients into being sure that asset is used in distribution. I help them write disclosures to put into their contracts if necessary. And that is the agreement of every person that works with me, that they're going to take this journey with me. They're going to learn what it is. They're going to understand the importance. They're going to sign off on scripts. They're going to be part of it with me. And by the time they've 
have this asset, they realize there's such a value to it. And then they're endeared to what it is. That grant really um, sort of represented. So in case people aren't aware, when she says asset, when you deliver a project, the assets are captions, audio description. There are many different parts of it. So having the asset of audio description in your project and you're educating people that this is important. And then hopefully you were saying when they go into future projects, they bring that with them. But right. most people don't know about audio description. So educating is really important. Um, Lee, did you have any questions for Michelle? I was just going to touch on what you guys were both saying is that I love your approach, Michelle, in the way that you educate people in a very hands-on sort of experiential way, not just, you know, read this pamphlet or read this amount of information, but you're like, I'm willing to work with you. I'm willing to help you learn as long as you're open to it. And I think that that's such a beautiful thing that you do and very unique in the way that you do it. Um, so I really commend that. On the note of grants, do a lot of filmmakers apply for these grants now? And how has that kind of changed over the years for you? So uh, that's a very interesting question. So over time, because I was one of probably the first that ever did this, there are now, for example, film festivals that are providing audio descriptions that's been funded by different individuals, families, corporations. As you probably well know, HBO has a strong awareness around um disability inclusion, accessibility now. So they might come in and they'll represent this or maybe they'll do that. But the idea is that it's changing and I, and people have come to me and asked me, well, how do you curate that? How, how do you how do you do your line budget? How do you position it? And I've, I've given people sort of a platform of which they can work off of or bounce off of. And I think right now we're going to see more of this. We do need more of it. So part of where I'm, and I, I have not formally announced this yet, but I'm happy to uh, touch upon it now. Part of where I'm going to be pivoting is as a philanthropist and as a producer of audio description and advocate, um, I'm going to be going out now and doing public speaking to other philanthropists and corporations about raising more awareness and money to help fund the arts and accessibility and the world of disability at large, because many people do, are not aware of what it is and how does this work. And that includes, for example, live theater, that includes the museum world, that includes everything, right, including film. So if, for example, my work is mostly word of mouth. People will call me and ask me, oh, would you consider this? Or a film festival will send me five, six, seven films. Will you choose? And I do. So there's already a, sort of a pattern in place that's been here for a long time, but then someone will recommend somebody else and that person will recommend somebody else. Or I'll hear about a project and I'll approach somebody and say, I want to be attached to it. So please keep in mind and bear in mind, there's only so many grants I can provide a year because they are costly and timely. And my voice is, 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 of course, for free, but it's at a cost of all my time and effort that I put into production. I have a full production team. So I think that in the not too distant future, the more awareness that's built, we will find additional funding to be sure that audio description is included, whether when it gets to a film festival, like a disability film festival, and the funding is already in place. Or, for example, I, I can't reference specifically, but I can say abstractly, I'm currently talking to a very large film festival, and I am perhaps going to be talking to their funders that are already in place about allocating some of their funding specifically for that festival for audio description and why. 
And this is sort of a new approach that I have decided I think is worthy. As a philanthropist, I can speak to other philanthropists. I'm not asking for money. I am a philanthropist and I'm a producer of audio description. So I'm out, I'm really, they're speaking to someone like themselves, right? And that way they have an understanding as to what I've chosen to put my my money and my mouth in, right? Um, I might attach my voice to. And at that point, I think it's it's charismatic and it's compassionate and it's heartfelt and it's very, very authentic. So I think my goal now moving forward, part of my goal will be exactly what we're talking about is to raise that bar and raise more funding. And then it becomes more mainstream. And all these people, you know, Alex is talking about a lot of people that don't know about it. Well, you're correct. There are a lot of people in the world that don't know about it. The majority of people know more about captions because they'll turn on something like, I don't know, the news and they'll see open captions, you know, going across the screen or they're in a bar and the volume's turned down, but you see the open captions. Um, we need to make this as, as, a, you know, as an awareness built in at the exact same e equal space as people know about captions. And some people don't even know about captions and that audio description is equally the same value and the same importance. So this is part of where we need to go. And, and this is part of where I believe my energy needs to be directed because I am one of those people that started that type of funding and created and put um, grants in place. So it could be that I say to somebody, well, we have another organization that I'd like to see a, a new grant program put in place for finishing funds for film or for a live play, um, performances, uh, stage performances, museum exhibits that may not otherwise have the funding. It's really across the board. And I would say to a funder, whether it's a corporation or whether it's an individual or a family philanthropist, choose what interests you. What do you resonate with? And at that point, I do believe I'm going to be quite successful in, uh, um, should I say, advocating for and probably implementing some pretty substantial funding that will go towards this area. So do you think the lack of independent filmmakers having audio description on their movies at the festival level is due to unawareness of it? Or do you think it's a budgetary reason? Because they, I've heard rumors that like, they don't want to do it because they know if Netflix buys it, they'll do their own track, even if they already have one. Uh, yeah. So this is a this is a very this is a very sort of complicated, convoluted arena, right? So I also consult with film festivals, and I I consulted with um, Tribeca this year, and I was in the background working with the post production department and creating the document that went out to filmmakers requesting that they submit their films with audio description in addition to captions and the why. And they did receive a substantial amount more films than they had the year before. Now, it's not where it needs to be, but we know that every year that will grow. And to answer your question, now we have to go outside of independent films because this is only one part of, of what we're talking about, okay? So when we talk about the film world or media or television or gaming or, you know, AR, VR, all the things that are going on in our world today, there's going to be a number of reasons that content's going to come in and or not come in with accessibility. One is the film festival itself is not requesting it and or saying this is what we require. The other problem is producing that asset is very time consuming and to get it in at the deadline that the film festival requires it, which is usually at least a month in advance, 
could be problematic. In addition to the funding to make it happen, where do we go? Now, when I worked with Tribeca, I assigned different production companies. I, I consulted with them, said, would you like to be part of this document? They were going to be the designated providers on that form that people could call. So you don't just say to people, we need you to do this. You say, these are funders you can go to. And by the way, and I again, I loosely will respond to the cost of those assets varied based on those that I referred in that document. It was a range, okay? And that gave people an opportunity to, to go in whatever area they wanted to. Now, when we're talking about commercial films and, and major theatrical releases, a lot of them do not come in with the audio description either. Um, and uh, it just wasn't a priority at the time. So, and then maybe they did a little bit of refining of the film later. But if a film is going to get an audience award and they'd like low vision blind people to participate in the voting, well, by all means, how do they do that if there isn't audio description? Okay. So we have issues around that. We have issues, of course, that also are relevant to open captions. For example, Tribeca did offer open captions for any film about deaf content or made by a person who was hard of hearing or deaf. And they gave them the option to, you know, um, have open captions. They have to embed those on screen. That's more cost other than just closed captions. But, you know, we have to be sensitive to this. And there's there's an awareness being built there. You know, there's a there's a layer of, a, of should I say, activism going on and implementation. And so we, you know, we talk about South by Southwest. They're very good about it. Sundance is, you know, one of the premieres that started with, you know, sort of launching this kind of awareness. Um, Tribeca's in that space now. And then, of course, the Disability Film Festivals were long there for a long time. And, and others, right? The UK might have more awareness and, and built in about audio description and ask for the assets. So I'm going to turn it around this way. So I, I reverse this since I consult in this area. I would say to filmmakers from the get-go, as that project's about to go out the door, at every best effort you have, have the audio description, the captions already in place. So when it goes out the door to the exhibition and distribution space, exhibition meaning, um, you know, film festivals and what have you, and premieres, and then going into the distribution space, that you already have these assets in place. But with that in mind, you have to also build that into your distribution. You have to be sure they are accepting it. They have to do their own QC, whoever they're working with. Some may dispose of it. They may say, this is not um, from our post or this is not in the league we're looking for, who knows what their reasons are and they have the right to have their own reasons, but you can make your best effort to say this was done professionally, this was done at the specs we hope you need, if not that particular provider, producer will amend it accordingly. So for example, let's use PBS for an example. I've done a, a fair amount of projects in PBS. Now, PBS has their own specs. They usually need it well in advance of the actual airtime on broadcast. And if that filmmaker or the other person said, oh, I'm going to turn that over to the post department, didn't say, well, we need to let them know that well in advance, you'll lose that asset and it'll be recreated. Now, I would hate to see something recreated when it was already paid for before. And that's even if PBS paid for it. Because if you chose the vendor, you chose someone or you got a grant, or you chose someone like me to produce it, and you went through that process, you wouldn't want to put that in the garbage because you went through that process and you approved that and you're endeared to it. So there is a lot of reasons that things may not end up at the film festival or they may not end up somewhere else. And when they defer to, oh, well, when I get distribution, Netflix will pay for it. Well, that's that could be the case. That isn't always the case, by the way. And again, I can't comment on any of that, but there are there are loopholes in part of what we're talking about, and it varies greatly. So 
there's multiple reasons, but I also have to be cognizant and I have to be, you know, very clear that it's true. If people prefer to wait, they don't have the funding, they don't have the time. Well, then, should they get distribution? That's if they get it. And maybe that company will put the onus on them to fund it, or maybe they will absorb it. There is no guarantee of any of that. It depends on what they've negotiated in their contract. Okay. So, and again, that company may say, well, we only take assets from a preferred vendor that's been legally vetted, blah, blah, blah. But I would say more likely than not, if it's a very high quality asset that's been produced, hopefully that will go through to the finish line. But remember, we're still in process. We're still in that lane. We're, we're creating, we're building awareness. So the louder the louder the voices are that talk about this, the more important it is. But the, the best advice I can give to anybody is if they're willing to take this advice at your best effort, try to make it happen up front. And but be aware that it may or may not be taken down the road, but hopefully it will be. But it's going to require somebody internally in that group of producers and directors and post-production people to say, we have it, we want it. We This is the one we want. We care about this. Please use this asset. If we need to QC it and amend it, we will do whatever we need to do. And that's mm -hmm. my personal experience. Other people may have had other experiences, but as a grant provider and a producer, we turn out pretty high quality projects. And um, I, I, I could say rarely in my entire 10 years has my asset been turned down. Now, it may turn out that up front, a producer will come to me and say, I want you on this project, but it's a so-and-so project, okay? Meaning it's a big, you know, post house project and they won't accept anything outside of their wheelhouse. They only want to do this internally. And by the way, internally might mean AI, which doesn't make me happy, but I have to defer to that. And at that point I have to step back, but that is such a rare situation in my case. But I also, you know, I have to be, I have to be comfortable with, you know, whatever it is that, that people are engaging or coming across. And for people who don't know, QC stands for quality control. So when an audio description track is either written completely or sometimes is voiced completely too, they'll have someone go through and check it to make sure it's actually accurate. And then they'll go in and make changes accordingly. Um, and one other thing before I turn it over to Lee, I wanted to touch on it's we're getting to the point now where I feel like movies with open captions, they're like, oh, we need to make sure this is a movie about deaf people. So we need open captions or this is a movie about blind people. So we need audio description. Okay. That's cool. But like, we want to watch more movies, more than just movies about blind people. Like we want other things. Too, all media, you know? all media, all yeah. media, different walks of life. You know, all media yeah. should be, all media should be made accessible. That's the bottom line. And a huge percentage now is if you go into the movie theater, there's a very tiny percentage. It, maybe it's more likely a foreign title that came in without description because it'd have to be recreated in, you know, in English. But for the most part, there were days I used to go to the movie and I'm, I'm a cinephile. I go to the movies all the time. And yeah. I would, I would, you know, I would test and see if the equipment's working or I would, you know, I would come and sort of anonymously and say, hmm. But I can tell you in, in 10 years ago when I started this, oh, I'd say probably a third of them were audio described. Now, three thirds of them, you know, or three quarters of them are audio described. So, you know what I mean by that? So now we're looking at something quite different. We are, we are experiencing this in a way that, it's a it's a much smaller percentage. And I know which distributors are the ones. And, and I, again, I don't I think we don't need to talk about who they are, 
Um, it looks rather inappropriate and politically incorrect when you walk into a movie theater and, you know, 80% of their content or 90% of their content is audio described. And then there's a handful that happen, and it's always the same producers or chasing distributors rather. I wanted to go back and touch on something you mentioned, which was AI. And I'm just curious to know in this climate that we're living in, AI is affecting everyone, you know, and it can affect people positively or negatively. It can affect, you know, the creative space positively or negatively in different ways. Uh, so for you um, doing your work with consulting and um, working with companies for audio description and other assets, how has AI changed the game or how is it changing the game for you? So for me, it doesn't really affect me personally because I'm going to work on one-to-one with my clients. But in the larger space, again, I always want to be um, diplomatic and I and I want to be I want to be objective as opposed to subjective. Look, I am not the consumer of this media. Your community is. And really, there was so many years in history where you were all listening to synthetic voicing for all purposes, right? And then at some point in history, the art form of live describers came in, in many platforms, right? And many different art forms. Now, there will be people who are perfectly okay with synthetic voices, there are going to be people who absolutely do not want that. I think it's a preference. But the reality of what's happening in our world, whether we like it or not, is that the cost factor for synthetic voicing, they compared to humans, uh, perhaps might be uh, more cost effective for people on a budget or people that are looking for something a little bit different or they're, you know, they're basing it off of a cloud program and they're able to do editing within a cloud program and then they can edit synthetic voicing easier or what have you. You know, there's many reasons this happens and it's not really my wheelhouse because I don't enter into that area. But for if, if it was a matter of live audio description as opposed to none, okay, and the only budget accommodated synthetic voicing, well, then I would imagine that the community would say, we'll take synthetic voicing because we need description no matter what. There's a lot of ways to sort of parcel out what we're talking about. And no matter what we do, it's still going to be part of our future. And then, of course, you know, AI can duplicate people's voices. They could take my voice and they could, you know, duplicate my voice. I don't want that to happen, but they could. And this is part of the AI story. And we all know what this is all about. And then the synthetic voice is a whole nother thing. And then there are other companies that use a combination of synthetic voices and real voices. And then they kind of sew it together and they engineer it together. And it kind of sounds a little of both. You know, there's just so many ways. My personal preferences, I've worked very hard at this art form. I value it. I treasure my voice and what I do in this and what I turn out. Um, I would be very sad if you know, I wasn't able to do this in the future in this arena. And I would be very sad for those consumers of what I do not to have access to my voice and what I do. But the, the future will tell its own story. It will just be what it's gonna be. But you in the end, both of you, are really the end users and the deciding factors and the advocates for what you want for yourselves. I. I completely agree. Like I, I prefer an actual person describing in my audio description, but if it's a choice between none or synthetic, I would rather have synthetic than none at all. 
Um, right. If we're, you know, if it's an independent movie and they're really struggling for money, yeah, do the synthetic so we can at least get something. Um, I also wanted to ask you, Michelle, we were talking at Sundance in 2021 about, we had someone on, I think they were from a university in, in New York. Yeah, that's um, Alice Elliott at NYU in the film school. Yeah, so we we made a big point and I thought it was really interesting that if we can start teaching audio description in film schools, that's right. that will trickle down to future filmmakers and more that's things. That's correct. That's so correct. You touch a little bit on that. Yeah, absolutely. So again, I I was sort of ahead of the ahead of the curve there doing that. I mean, in other words, there are other entities that have been teaching for a long time, but I would go into the universities and I would say, let's let's instate this awareness. Let's do a guest lecture. Um, I've done this at Emerson. I've done it uh, San Francisco State. I've done it at NYU. So, so I mean, I've done it a lot of places. I'll be doing it again very shortly. Um, I do find that it's really productive. And uh, often most of my students don't know anything about it. They learn about it and they're very fascinated by it. And I know that if I've planted that seed then, that they will never forget it. And I, I just think this is where we need to make sure it's done. And I think more and more people are doing it, whether I also educated, I did a huge presentation for all the staff of the entire film school for NYU and talked about why they need to impart this information to the entire school, not just one class, right, of film. So, you know, I, I also was aware that audio description was more or less taught in the performing arts arena than it was in film school. Because the performing arts, of course, they have description, you know, that's there. Uh, they have the captioning bars that are there, so on and so forth, and, and what have you. So I found it kind of interesting that it was taught more prominently in that arena than it was in film and television. So you are correct. I think it should be mandated. I think it should be part of every curriculum. I think it should not even just be an elective. It should be a, a prerequisite for anything that's going on in film school, anything in television, broadcast, what have you. And by the way, I've also taught at Montclair and Montclair University is in the process now of teaching audio description writing. They've talked about possibly doing an accredited program or something. They're, they're trying to figure it out, what's going to work best. But they are definitely, and they have a film festival there as well. And Emerson College does too, I think. Um, they are rooted in this awareness. And so that's the kind of thing we want to see. But if for some reason... You know, people are doing the accredited programs like that. I still say it should be a prerequisite course if you want to put it in, you know, like any other any other college courses you're taking. You know, often we have to take theory and we say, well, what are we going to do with theory? OK, consider it something in theory. It's not really theory. It's application, but make it part of a prerequisite. And I think if that were done, the future of media and accessible media will change the game. It would be great, even if they were just like um, folded it into your senior project and be like, in your senior project, you need to provide these assets of captions and audio description for all of your projects before yeah. you can graduate. Some of them are doing that in a little bit of a different way, but not dissimilar. I've seen that also. Um, it might be an elective course or what have you. And they think, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then they're required to create the audio description. So that's not uncommon either. There are big tech companies right now. Again, I'm not going to reference to anyone specifically, but there are tech companies that are out there putting together educational programs that are then going out to the ethers. So um, I think more people have their hand at this now than they did before. And again, at some point, the the absolute pipe dream would be that it was part of every program, no matter what state, no matter what country you're in, for media across the board.
I guess one other question that came to mind uh, for you, Michelle, and, and you have touched on aspects of this, but uh, if there's anything more specific, I guess, that comes to mind in terms of with the work that you do, um, what are some of the challenges you encounter with it? I know that we talked about, you know, like lack of education can be one of them. So you need to educate them, you know, financial constraints um, with the people you're working with can be one. Um, beyond that, though, are there any other challenges that you encounter that you've had to kind of navigate in different ways? Yeah, so I, I think I, I'm going to I'm going to reference here to uh, the Academy Awards. Um, I am the person that consulted behind the scenes for four months for the first audio described Academy Awards, and I offered the funding to make that happen and so on and so forth. That was quite a maze to make come to fruition. And eventually after that, all the award shows now are becoming audio described, the Emmys, the Tonys, you the name SAG it. Awards. Yep, all of them. I was also a consultant for the SAG Awards, internal SAG Awards. Um, <laughs> there's a lot I did behind the scenes that, that not, ne not necessarily everyone knew about because I had to work behind the scenes to try to move the dial, right? We didn't know if that dial was gonna really move, but I am very proud of that type of work, but I will tell you internally the, the, the problems that happen or the obstacles that happen is that maybe the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing or the network versus the program itself has less control. And then maybe the network has more control and then decision-making changes and, and results change. But there is a maze in which we all have to work through. And it's the same thing with film projects. We're talking about distributors and we're talking about exhibitors. Um, I think the biggest challenge, and I've learned to navigate it very well, I've also had to separate myself from the end result of it because it may not always turn out the way I want it to, but I've done my very best, is that we get as many people on the same page in the same room. And if we don't, cracks happen, right? Things fall through the cracks. And then you've done all this work and then something else falls through or that person didn't know or that person didn't tell that person. I would say for me personally, that has been the most, um, probably the most challenging aspect of the work that I do. But remember, I'm not just a narrator. I'm not for hire like that. I am in the world of production and I'm in the world of all of it. And then I'm funding it on top of it. So that's where I come into play. It could be a, a streaming outlet. That person wasn't made aware in advance that that client was my client. And then this is not something they're necessarily uh, comfortable with, or they can't accept a grant or this, that, and the other. So Again, I, I, I'm not going to point out anything in particular, but this is this would be my personal experience. But the longer I've been doing this, the longer I accept the outcome, because I know there are many ways in which different things are happening. But I'd like us all to be on the same page. I'd like to see somebody come in and take an official position at a company and say they are the access coordinator so that they are the person that we are talking to. Right. Whether it's a you know company that does production, you know, all the time, they're working on several projects all the time. Oh, can you be sure that asset, you know, you know, access asset coordinator is on top of this? They followed the assets, it went to every distribution platform, which again are other links in the chain that get broken. So let's say, for example, I've worked on something really hard, I funded something. And I saw that the filmmaker got distribution, but they probably got a little bit nervous because they knew that the power was in the hands of the distributor. 
and they forgot to tell them, oh gosh, I don't want it just to go on the um, theatrical run, but I, we need to be in the distribution um, streaming. Oh, oh, by the way, we also want to be sure it goes on the, um, you know, the travel uh, distribution platform, you know, uh, rather a platform and that it gets on airplanes and trains. Oh gosh. And I have, then I have a blind colleague that might say they were on the plane and oh my God, your film, I know you worked on that. You have, you have credits on screen for it, so, but you know, the audio description wasn't on the plane. I said, what? I'm so upset. So I have to, I really coach my clients. And I say, if you get this asset, you've got to, you've got to honor it. You've got to treat it with all the power you have and be sure you understand where it goes and don't let the distributor make all those decisions for you because you might have to educate them too. So that's really my answer to you because all the rest of it is kind of easy breezy for me now. And 10 years into this, I've, I've put my entire heart into this area. And um, I, I really, I, I sort of come across all, all sorts of areas in this arena. And I would say that's probably the most challenging for me, but it's not impossible, but it takes more work and takes more advocacy. That makes sense. I mean, clear communication and getting everyone on the same page goes a long way even speaking you know from my creator experience as a director or part of a production team on you know whether it's a film production or a theatrical production it's just like as long as the right hand can know what the left hand is doing it's you know simple but it can make such a big difference too you can it most certainly can um i wanted to ask you i know to a lot of our listeners and other blind people who use audio description um narrators are like celebrities to us because we're like oh my god we hear we hear your voices all the time so i wanted you to can you name some well-known titles you're you are known for but also what are the titles you're like the most proud of oh wow oh gosh i get asked this question all the time you know i love every project i work on i have to tell you i i'm endeared to everything especially when you fund it because you've chosen it, right? You've chosen that media, you've chosen that client, you've chosen that content to stand behind. And every time I finish a project, my heart is so full. It, I really have to say that in all honesty. Um, I have loved, for example, I'm currently working on two projects, uh, which will, I can't say too much other than I'll, I'll talk about <laughs> titles and subjects. They will be coming out at some point. Um, I just finished audio describing the new um, Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop documentary, and it's a knockout. It's an absolute knockout. And I'm also going to be working on the Gene Wilder documentary. I recently did Lucy and Desi last year, not the one with Javier Bardem, but the documentary, which was just fantastic. Um, you know, I've worked on a lot of titles about disability that are tremendous and Crutch was a wonderful film. Um, yeah, Best Summer Ever was great. I mean, and then there's another one I just recently did, which premiered at uh, Tribeca about Special Olympics. Um, I worked on the Dan Rather documentary that just premiered at uh, Tribeca. There's just so many titles, so many different films. And I've said this before, and, and, and people have interviewed me so many times, and, and I can't help but say this again because not maybe the listeners that have listened to that interview are going to listen to this interview. If you've heard it before, then you're going to hear it again. There's nothing more rewarding for me personally than to take on a project and to 
get up close and personal with those people featured in the project and or the makers of that project, and then finally meet them in person at a screening. My heart, I literally walk in the room and I, I tell you every single time I get teary eyed and I just, I get goosebumps because what I chose to attach myself to and share their story in as best a reality and honest space that I can convey it to the low vision and blind community at my best efforts, that that story meant so much to me to take on and then to share for your community. Um, I don't think there's anything more rewarding. I can only imagine what that moment would be like to meet those people that, you know, you've been describing or that you've been working on um, their project for so long. Yeah, that has to be such a magical moment. Yeah, magic. That's a good word. It is magic. And I, I do feel that this, I, I have been very fortunate that the universe planted this career path and this, you know, philanthropic path uh, in my sphere. And um, I feel, I feel so lucky and so fortunate that I've had this opportunity over this last decade. I, I wouldn't have imagined that my life would have gone in this direction and this would have come to my life. And I'm almost 60 years old. So really I tell everybody it's never too late to find your place in the world, to find your space, to find your passion. Um, I was 49 when I found it. And what an honor. And what and, a beautiful community to serve, by the way. And we are really thankful as well, because honestly, if I were born 20 years earlier, I'd be yeah. SOL with my passion. And I'd be like, oh, I guess I can't watch movies then. So like, you know, but yeah. no, I'm very thankful that all of this exists too. It's wonderful, wonderful. Well, I'm I'm honored to have been on the podcast. I'm delighted to speak to both of you. And I can only ask that collectively we all keep marching forward. We keep asking for what we need to see, you know, transform the space we're in now. And I I'm fairly certain in the next decade, um, this is going to be a very different space. We we are going to be in a much more accessible world with a much more awareness. And I, for one, will keep. Uh, stomping my feet and opening doors and prying open doors and doing what I do and funding what I can and finding others to additionally help fund it now. It's definitely a team effort. And um, like you said, we all work together on this. We all advocate and educate in the ways that we're able to. And, you know, little by little progress is being made. And I agree with you that I think it will continue to be made in 10 years from now it's exciting to think about uh, where we'll be. And I just want to commend you once again, Michelle, for the work that you're doing just for the passion that you have is very evident for what you do and your heart of care and compassion for the communities that you serve is, um, it just rings out so clearly even from this interview. And I thank you so much for the ways that you're helping to advance things for all of us. It's uh, definitely very significant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really, um, I'm honored to even hear that. And that that's what, that's what makes my world go around. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michelle. And I really want to encourage any other, any listeners out there cited or unsighted, if you haven't tried audio description to try it thank you for listening to the podcast because that means that you are at least curious about it and remember especially for non-sided people like advocate for yourself like if you 
are in the theater and it's not working or if there's a streaming service that doesn't have it like stomp your feet make yourself known go make sure they do the description device right email the streaming service be like i want to watch this but i can't like if you don't speak up you know if they don't hear from more people they're not going to change so you know we all need to be advocates in this absolutely absolutely and if anybody wants to reach out to me um, you are welcome to if you have questions, if you'd like to learn more about audio description or education or anything at all or consulting, you're welcome to contact me. I always welcome anybody who wants to. Um, my website is womanofherword.com and my email is michelle at womanofherword.com. So you are welcome to reach out to me anytime. And um, I look Michelle forward with one L, right? That's correct. Thank you for correcting that. And um, I look forward to staying in touch with everybody. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you so much for being here, Michelle. And thank you everyone out there for listening. If you have any questions or comments on anything that we discussed today, feel free to email us at darkroomfilmcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's darkroomfilmcast at gmail.com. And we also want to take a moment to shout out Matt Lauterbach and All Senses Go for making transcripts of this podcast episode possible, as well as all previous episodes. And you can also follow us on Instagram at darkroomfilmcast. And I also want to let everyone know that on John Stark's YouTube channel, who was on the Chris Nolan episodes, his YouTube channel is Mac the Movie Guy, M-A-C. Lee and I will be doing Oscar shows with him live every I think it's every Sunday. He's going to try and do it every week, but we'll see how often we get to it. But Lee and I will be switching off uh, weekly on shows to predict the Oscars for 2024. So tune into that. Yeah. And find out if our predictions are correct. Well, thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you here next time on the dark room. Take care guys.